Welcome to Dyslexics Wanted, produced by the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia. This is Jordan Rich. This podcast celebrates the unique strengths and creativity so often the hallmark of people with dyslexia. Today, we welcome Dr. Phil Hulbig, who teaches at both Curry College and Leslie College in the Boston area. Dr. Hulbig has developed and designed specialized metacognitive programming for students in various public school settings. He works as an advocate, crisis intervention specialist, tutor, social skills coach, and yes, skateboarding instructor, and we'll talk about that. He lives the life of someone with learning disabilities, has adapted resilience in his own life, and is sharing it now with others. So in welcoming Dr. Philip Hulberg, let me ask the question, what was it like for you dealing with dyslexia? It was tough, but um, in my later life as a, an educator, people have had it, students have it, had it much more tough than I had it. <laughs> um, but I did... Uh, you know, sort of end up going to school at a time that was rather unique in sort of history. Um, you know, I I didn't realize really that I had a learning disability um, probably until I got into middle school. Um, before that, it was really kind of just sort of worked into, you know, sort of the, the day-to-day education process. I figured that um, when I was pulled out of class for speech and language and uh, OTPT and all the other related services that I was getting that everybody else was just being pulled out at that time. You know, so it really wasn't until I ended up in middle school uh, that it suddenly hit me that I was sort of a different learner. Um, Mm. And it's kind of a funny story. So I I love telling it (laughs) Um, because I ended up with this, you know, the toughest teacher in the sixth grade. Uh, His name was Mr. Barnett, and he used to have this wonderful sort of uh, shtick that worked, I believe, really, really well for uh, ADHD students like myself. He was just sort of played this deranged drill sergeant sort of a sixth grade teacher, and he would just bark orders at people all the time. Mr. Holbig, do this! You know, uh, you know, like he actually had this, um, uh, you know, like the Mr. Barnett's moving crew. So if you were really, really, if you were really doing well, you got to be part of his moving crew and you would help move chairs all around the campus, <laughs> you know? And I remember, like, you know, talking to a, a friend of mine who was in the class. I'm like, yeah, did you ever get to do that? And she was like, ah, I never wanted to do that. That was really more for the uh, ADD boys. And I was like, <laughs> you know, like I didn't even, you know, I didn't pick it up until then. <laughs> Even though I had been a teacher for years and been kind of using similar strategies myself. Well, let me let um, me so, just jump in and ask you a follow up on something you said because this is not the first time I've heard this. You said you didn't realize you had learning disabilities. It took a while. I think that's a major talking point that I'd like to focus on with you because your work today is helping people, young people, learn resilience. And isn't the first step to know you have an issue and then you can get on to dealing with it? it that is is a very key point of what I'm trying to get people to understand, that we don't naturally understand how we think, even if you're a neurotypical person. Mm-hmm. You know, you really have to do some metacognitive self you know, observation and, 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 and see how it is that you do learn. What is, you know, your learning style, you know, um, how, what is your special formula about the things that you do that are kind of unique to the way that you learn. Um, but before, you know, like, you know, before, like, actually really before I got into college, 
Um, I really didn't have very much of an idea about that at all. Um, you know, and so when I got into middle school and I ended up seeing, you know, I got my schedule and it was like, oh my God, you know, like I was told by Mr. Barnett that there would be no recess in middle school. And when I got my, um, schedule, it said, you know, um, it would be no, uh, that I had recessed, I had recess study. <laughs> so I was so excited to have recess study. I was like, hey, I got recess study. You know, and then somebody, you know, put me straight, oh, you don't have recess study, you're in the retard room. Uh-huh. Okay, and like, that was like, whoa, what is this? And right. that was the first time I'd ever been exposed to that word, okay, in that context before, um, in relation to myself. And sure enough, you know, like back in the day, I mean, it, it still continues to this day, but like back in the day, um, basically it was brand new, this chapter 766 thing. So all of the students who had IEPs were basically sent to the same little room in my school. And so there were just, you know, all these different disability categories, students with Down syndrome, students with autism, students with bipolar and conduct disorders, and then there was like a handful of students who couldn't read and write like myself and some ADDers in there, you know, and we were all kind of in the same area, but nobody was ever really told what was going on mm. with us. Mm-hmm. And so you make assumptions, and I think this is a big piece that I that I, I feel is so important. Students make assumptions as to what where they are, and they look around them, and they look at what is the setup for the environment. And if everything in your environment is telling you that you are inferior in some sort of way, I mean, I kind of believe that I was just stupid. Okay. Cause I kind of looked around the room and there, there seemed to be only three categories, people who were kind of, you know, violent, you know, crazy or dumb. And I figured I must be in the dumb category cause I couldn't read. I couldn't spell. Okay. Um, and, that just sort of sent me on a downward spiral where I just did not care about anything. There was really nothing that anybody could do to punish me or anything that I could fail. I was basically fail resistant because I had failed so many times. Um, and then just the saving grace was that I had failed out, uh, failed by the time I got into high school, I had failed so badly that they wanted to pull me out of like academics and put me into a vocational program and when they delivered that message to my father, who is a working class guy, runs a construction company, he's like, well, why would I want to pull that out of academics to put into the vocational? I, you know, I wanted to, you know, like be able to go on to college or something like that. And they said, well, Mr. Haldig, even if your son was getting A's at this time, he wouldn't be able to get into any colleges. He's not in those level classes. My father's mind was blown at that point. And so, uh, make a long story short, after he kind of balled out the, um, the guidance counselors, everybody agreed that I would stay back. Um, I would get moved into all college preparatory classes so that I could do, uh, I could fail a few classes that meant something, as my father said. Hmm. Okay. And then, um, you know, they would agree to get me a tutor who happened to be a guy named Ned Bradford who worked at the program for the advancement of learning. Um, And he taught me this thing called metacognition, which is really, at its very base, looking at how you learn and trying to figure out what mm. is, how do you learn? What, what is your way of learning? You know, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Um, and all of this goes, goes back to Dr. Webb, who was the founder of that program, who had a very, I feel, very enlightened sort of view of just how the brain works and how learning works. 
and really getting people to understand that it's your strengths and your weaknesses. And you've got to use your strengths to sort of either overcome your weaknesses or find a workaround, okay? But if you're not looking for the strengths and you're just focusing on the weakness, you're, you're not even even focusing on half of the equation because it's not just knowing the strengths and the weaknesses. It's being able to like think about them and strategize around them. Um, and so for me, that was a major, you know, like, wow, I'm not really dumb. Uh, I just have not really, I don't know how to learn. You know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I learn differently and everybody wants me to learn this way or that way. Um, you know, in these ways just, don't work with me. I mean, I'm a very visual person, even to this day, when I outline something, I always do a web, you know, um, it just works much better Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. my visual sort of thing. Plus I am always indecisive and I like the ability to kind of like move these little boxes around afterwards. Um, you know, and so that's my learning style that, uh, took me many years to realize after many, many years of trying to make outlines and whatnot right. that in, in write notes down that I couldn't keep up with. Um, and so I guess to make a long story short, I luckily ended up in at, uh, being accepted into the PAL program, which I believe Dr. Webb was instrumental in that. <laughs> I Indeed, think Ned probably very much went, so, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> I think Ned probably went to her and said, you know, give this guy a chance. Cause I, when I went for that interview uh, at Curry, they said, are you sure you want to go to a four year college? there's a nice two-year college down the street from me. Mm-hmm. You know, they really wanted to try to talk me out of it. So I thought for sure I wasn't even getting in. And so when I got in, I was like, wow, okay, um, which I think is also a very important sort of uh, reality of, you know, like, you know, that motivation piece for me was huge. I had an opportunity to maybe try and uh, become a different person than I had been. Um, and so... Uh, having that experience with metacognition and this ability to start really looking at your learning disability that way and seeing, I went from a a kid who was failing out of high school um, to graduating from Curry College with a major in English and education and a minor in psychology, cum laude. Um, And I, you know, I immediately got a job in education right after that working uh, as an inclusion aide. And and many of the um, techniques that I used uh, kind of came directly from my experience as, mm. um, uh, as a PAL student because I ended up going into inclusion, working with students, you know, like at that beginning stage of the inclus- inclusion movement, they brought a lot of students back into the public school who would have historically just been completely excluded. They wouldn't even been allowed to walk in the front door. Um, and so when they brought these students in, um, like my student that I, one of my students that I worked with was, was diagnosed ADHD. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to be great. I know, I know ADHD. I'm ADHD. Okay. Well, I, that, that student right there taught me that I knew nothing. Um, and actually as time went by, it turned out that he, his diagnosis wasn't quite, uh, of ADHD wasn't quite right. Later on, he, uh, had sort of a, a complete breakdown and was, and was diagnosed with a much more significant, um, disability. But that um, experience really sort of changed me because, uh, you know, we use a lot of these diagnostic categories. We, you know, even with the word dyslexia or ADHD, all of these are, are, are terms that cover a cluster of symptoms 
but nobody has the same cluster of symptoms exactly the same. Like nobody, no two ADD students has the same style ADD. No two dyslexic students have the same style dyslexia. Um, you know, and, you know, that's why my, my feeling is like a lot of these terms that we, you are using right now to identify and diagnose students are really, you know, we've got to be realize that just placeholders and they're probably going to change over time. I mean, uh, dyslexia, for example, when you really start digging into it, okay, the, the term doesn't really give you a lot of detail. Um, it, you know, it, it, at least the deep level of detail that a person who has dyslexia really needs, okay? Like, to know that you're bad, you know, dys means not, and lexia means language, so dyslexia means you're not learning something about the language. But there, there are many different factors that could be involved, but one that comes up quite frequently, um, you know, is this weird sort of, like, ability to understand the the symbols and encoding of the language and the comprehension aspects of the language, you know, and when you start looking at um, the neurological testing of people, oftentimes you find that there's a specific group of, of dyslexic students that time and time again score really, really low on the um, encoding aspect, but really, really high on this understanding aspect. So they can't read it, but once the language gets in there, they understand it really well. But the interesting thing is they also have the same exact sort of setup in their ability to understand mathematics. In other words, they struggle with the calculations and uh, the counting of the numbers. But when it comes to the bigger concepts of the logic behind the mathematics, these students tend to understand that just fine. So are we looking at a, a reading disability, a language disability, or are we looking at something uh, that is specifically kind of a, a difference between the brain's ability to integrate its encoding ability and its ability right. to abstract right. or understand. You talk about the neuropsychological scaffolding that leads to the problem-solving process that seemed to make a lot of sense. Uh, learning why and how we learn first and foremost as opposed to discouraging people by telling them they're stupid. My hope also is to start to demedicalize our ability to think about thinking um, and, and, and talk about learning. Okay, when we talk about learning, we right now divide everything into like normal learning and disability, mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. and, you know, like we don't even talk about like above average learning, you know, um, and, you know, like when you start really thinking about your own learning, you you realize that it's, it's much more nuanced than than just that. And so one of the things that I've tried to do, um, which uh, kind of grew out of, you know, my experience with, with Dr. Gertrude Webb. Um, she, Dr. Gertrude Webb had this model that she called the cognitive ladder model. And really it was used at PAL as a way to get people to be thinking about those abstract aspects of, of learning that you really, you know, you can kind of talk about them but they're abstract, you know, they're not concrete. So when you're talking about things like attention and memory, um, you know, in, in some of the, you know, like some of the really amorphous ones, like analogy and analyzing, um, where does judgment come from? You know, like these are all concepts that are critical to the problem-solving process. And, you know, neurologically speaking, 
they have, you know, like people have different aptitudes in, in different areas. Um, and so like, you know, I mean, if you have uh, a problem, like let's say in, in your memory, okay, well, you could have this problem holding the facts and everything in your memory while you're trying to solve a problem. We call that working memory. And that gets immediately distilled down into attention deficit disorder. But we see that that weakness in, you know, sort of working memory and a lot more diagnosis than just ADHD. Um, and so it's almost like it's more functional if you are an individual person to know about the concept of working memory than it is to know about the concept of ADD. Okay, ADD, I've literally had ADD, attention deficit disorder, okay, I've had literally students in my classroom, okay, who have said to me, Mr. Halbig, I can't pay attention. I have ADD. That means I can't, I, I have attention deficit disorder. I can't pay attention. And they, you know, like wander aimlessly around the classroom. And it's like, whoa, 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 slow down. That's not even what that, what ADHD means, okay? I mean, um, you know, in, in its real actual manifestation. But the way that the word is set up and the way that we present it to people as a disability, it, it, it confuses it, actually the people yeah. who have the disability. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know? it, it, um, it does. The terms, the terms do confuse experts and non-alike. And there's a term I want you to talk about because I'm a fancier of puns and plays on words. It's called holistic problem solving, but it's spelled W-H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C. And I, I'm intrigued because I love wordplay. Tell me about holistic well, I, problem solving. I'd like to start by just saying thank you for asking that question because a holistic problem solving was my ultimate amalgamation of this idea of creating some sort of system that allows you to visualize the abstract neurological aspects of your learning. Mm -hmm. And basically, I took sort of Dr. Webb's sort of model and I added some areas that, you know, like were not even being researched, actually, at the time that she uh, wrote her, her cognitive model. Things like, um, you know, like research into sensory information, research into attention, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and I overlaid sort of what I was learning about the sort of neurocognitive aspects uh, of processing over the scientific design model, which is that basic sort of STEM model where you have an input, you have a processing phase, you have an output, and you know, like each of the each of the steps in that problem-solving process will eventually get you uh, to some sort of a solution. Well, I I overlaid the different um, neurological aspect of each of those different steps. You know, so instead of you know like like formulating a question, let's say at the very first stage, I have sensing. Okay, because the first thing that you do when you approach a problem is you've got a sense that you're taking it in through your senses. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, uh, you, you know, after that, you need to kind of pay attention to it because, you know, just because you sensed it, if you're not paying attention to it, it's not going to get into your mind. Same thing with, with memory. And so each of these uh, different uh, steps in the process allowed me to talk about students or, or talk with students about different aspects of their learning in a non-medicalized way. So, you know, like uh, if I have a dyslexic student, you know, I can use this model that we made to sort of say, hey, like notice where a lot of your problems are happening. It's happening in the input phase. You know, you're, you're not, you're not paying attention. You're forgetting. Okay. And so because you're not paying attention, you're forgetting, it's not getting into the processing stage. Your 
weakness lives right here at the input phase. And then we can start digging down on, well, what type of issues in the input phase are you having trouble with? Well, they're attention and memory. And then you can actually keep on digging down on attention and memory, like what aspects of your attention are causing you issues. Is it that you are terminally bored or is it that you are you know, emotionally high-keyed? Okay, because both of those can be very uh, destructive to attention, but they're two completely different aspects of attention that can can impact that. You know, um, you know, memory is another one. You know, like uh, I remember when I got at the pal in pal during summer pal, they would back in the day they would give everybody out their neurological testing as soon as you showed up. Mm. So everybody would get a copy of their neurological testing, and then for the whole summer we would all talk about our neurological testing and what what we learned about ourselves from learning about our own neurological testing. Okay, and I can remember that I was like one of the only people there. I, I, I scored in the sixth percentile in my, um, what do you call it? Uh, here, here's my memory, my short-term memory, the digit span test on the Wexler. <laughs> okay, now that's a putrid score. <laughs> okay, um, and if you have, you know, in, in, you know, like, um, you know, normal would be 50th percentile. Um, you know, and this was the first time that all of a sudden we were like actually talking about that. You know, even to this day, there are people who, um, you know, they see certain percentages on this testing. Okay. Like a six percentile score in, in digit span and be like, Oh gosh, that, that person's short term memory is, you know, they're going to have some serious problems. But my mentor, the wonderful Ned Bradford said, Oh my gosh, your, 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 your short term memory is terrible, Phil. Good thing we have a cure for that. Mm. And I went, really? And he goes, yeah, you got to write stuff down. (laughs) 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 You know, and I feel like, you know, that right there sort of encapsulates the whole idea. It's like oftentimes you spend, I spent most of my whole life, uh, educational life up into, you know, hiding what my weakness was or not really being sure what my weakness is, but I didn't want to tell anybody about it. You don't talk about it, you know, Um, and so the benefit of being able to go and be part of the metacognitive program at Curry was all of a sudden to say, wow, everybody's got lots of different issues and I've got my issues and we're all trying to, you know, figure it out. So, I mean, I, by the time I left Curry, I kind of was uh, almost proselytizing about like, Hey, yeah, I mean, I got dyslexia and ADD, but that's not a, the end of the world. That actually might means I might actually work better with these students. And, um, you know, so at first I wasn't afraid to tell anybody about my, uh, learning disability, and then I learned that uh, the world of work is not like um, the program for the advancement of learning. Okay, <laughs> that uh, you know, like, and the, the field of education. Well, we are trying to help students. There are still a lot of people in the field of education who are not supportive. Okay, and sometimes they think they're being supportive, and they're really not. Um, you know, and and so. Uh, that really kind of shocked me. Um, and so actually I went for many years where I just stopped telling people actually that I had a learning disability in my professional capacity. And it's kind of, um, I think, probably important to, to put out there because, I, you know, like when I went, I was, for, I was a inclusion aide for almost seven years, even though I was a double major, um, you know, and I was working with these very, very difficult kids. And I was actually having success with them, you know, like, um, and, you know, but when I would go for a job, they wouldn't hire me, you know, and it wasn't until I went for an English job, 
okay, one time, which again, I was an English major, you know, um, you know, why did I go and become an English major? Well, being a, an oppositional dyslexic, I wanted to prove everybody in college. That <laughs> I wasn't course. that dyslexic. What I learned was, no, I am dyslexic, but I can also get a good degree in English, right, you know. Right. Uh, it kept me, like, strong enough to even, like, you know, go back and get certified in Wilson Reading, which, you know, I used to have as a kid, okay, and do terrible at. Now I'm now I'm a trained Wilson. <laughs> uh, I'm trained in Wilson, you know. Can, can, can I just say one thing about the holistic problem-solving? I'm sure. sorry. I, sometimes I go off. Anyway, so I made that program, okay. I started using it before I ever had a name for it, okay? People were always asking me, what are you doing? You know, what are you, like, and it was always like, well, I'm trying to teach kids about their learning with, you know, and and help them understand where their weaknesses and their strengths are and all of that kind of thing. And so I needed a name for it, okay? And sort of like my, it's a problem-solving technique that sort of looks at problem-solving holistically, you know? Now, as a dyslexic, for me, okay, holistic, (laughs) okay, uh, the word hole, H-O-L-E, is the is a, is, a, is a hole in the ground we can throw something in. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, in a hole, you know, W-H-O-L-E means everything. And so that was the concept that I was grasping for when I created the name holistic problem solving. And then later on, somebody told me, oh, you know what, it's, that's actually not what, that's not the right word for that concept, holistic problem solving. Uh. <laughs> uh, it's actually spelled, you know, H-O-L. Um, and I went, oh, like as a dyslexic, I'm going to keep it that way. You realize <laughs> that there are people in marketing in, in New York and Chicago and L.A. who get big bucks to come up with great names like that. <laughs> it just, well, I just, it, 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 like, it's like, you know what, this is a program invented for dyslexics, <laughs> for <laughs> dyslexic, you know, and it would, I feel like it's fitting that it has sort of like it, a dyslexic style. It's an inside joke that we're now sharing with the world. You're terrific. Before we conclude, though, I do want to have you comment on one more very important aspect of what you're talking about. I love when you're suggesting that we come up with that common language and not medicalize everything in this realm. But I wanted you to focus just briefly before we wrap up, Phil, on the importance of mentorship and what roles the mentors should have today. Talk a little bit about goals for students out there with issues, how mentors can help. Well, my holistic problem-solving thing that I first started doing in in my classroom, I was a lead teacher in what are called substantially separate emotional behavioral classrooms, which I feel like is a disgusting way to describe what we did. (laughs) But basically, if you had some sort of behavior that made it really difficult for people to teach you, you would come to my program. And we generally, like, so there was no diagnostic, you know, it wasn't like a program for dyslexics or people with AD, you know, like we got all kinds of uh, different people. And so this program that really got people thinking about their learning without having to medicalize, you know, really worked quite well in terms of getting people to think about what their learning style was without having all of these, like, heavy conversations about, like, this is what my disability, you know, I mean, those conversations still come up, okay, but now it's framed in this deeper, more rich context. Um, And what ended up happening over time was budgets kept getting cut. Like, I started out, when I started out doing some separate, I was told that, you know, these are very rare students. You're never really going to have maybe more than four or five of these kids, you know, um, in the in the district because I was working in the district at that time. Well, um, you know, when I first started, I was doing grades, you know, one to 
one to five, and I had like maybe four or five kids. When I left, I was only doing grades three and four, and I had 13 kids in the program. Okay, um, the number of these students has ballooned, and so that really put pressure on my ability to do the kind of work that I was doing, because a lot of the metacognitive work that you do is it's discussion-based. Um, it's like small group, one-on-one. Um, and what I found was one day I noticed that one of my upper class paid, or class students, because I was in the middle school at the time and I had an eight, I had eighth grade, you know, uh, you know, through uh, fifth grade. And I started noticing that I had some of my, my older students were actually helping some of these younger students organize themselves, talking about like these different strategies that we were, you know, studying. And it was like, and it hit me, oh my gosh, this is, uh, this, this, this could be something. And I worked uh, with a wonderful person, Katie McNeese at that time, who was the aide in the classroom with me. And she just jumped right into that role of getting students to start to work together and support one another. Um, and so we sort of started to create this sort of mentoring sort of thing where I actually like would make these big, huge um, paper mache cups with the student's name on them. So like uh, when they were able to work their way completely out of my program, okay, out of this substantially separate program and back into the mainstream, into what was <laughs> at one time called regular special ed, okay, but like, um, they, you know, back into that inclusive model of special ed rather than a, than a substantially separate, um, you know, we, we would put their name on a cup and make a big deal out of it and then keep in, kind of inviting them back to sort of motivate and be a mentor to the other students. Well, that, that experience really stuck with me because that mentoring aspect was so powerful to me. And then to be able to come and be a teacher using the same techniques, you know, not only did it deepen my knowledge of, of, of metacognition and teaching, but also deepened my knowledge of myself and my ability to kind of understand. And so that's when it, when the, the idea for the, the genesis of where holistic problem solving is today, which is this idea of just getting everybody a mentor. Yeah. You know, th- yeah. that is really the big idea. If we can get people somebody who they can work with, who is going to get them thinking about their learning and applying what they think about their learning to what they're actually doing, which I think right. is kind of big, you know, kind of like applying a scientific method to your own learning. Um, and the way you're doing things so that you're not just saying, you know, that way doesn't work. You hear that a lot when you work with, with students who right. struggle in school. Right. I can't do that because I just don't know how to do that. You know, but when you flip it and have them start studying um, what's really working and what's really not working for them and have them looking at it that way, it, it sort of changes the whole relationship to education, um, which can have huge impacts just in the individual student, but also culturally, if that person now can kind of reach out and share mm-hmm. what they've learned sure. to somebody else. It, bonus content time, and uh, this is a must. We have to do this before we conclude officially. Skateboarding, okay? The Skate Hole <laughs> W-H-O-L-E Dojo. I'm getting uh, a Cobra Kai vibe here at the moment. But you're a skateboard enthusiast, I'm told, and you've incorporated some of this love for the work you're doing. Well, when I, when I made the holistic problem solving in my class, I had a theory that, wait a second, 
it's not you can probably teach basic aspects of metacognition through just about anything that a person is interested in. In other words, it's that motivation that they have that can you can use as a as a a, a way to draw them into thinking metacognitively about what they're doing. Um, and I had a student in my class actually at that time who was a a complete mess. The only thing that he was living for at that time was skateboarding, and I had torn my ACL. Uh, a while ago and had not skateboarded for years. Um, and, you know, actually, uh, the, the um, principal who I was working with at that time um, encouraged me to, like, maybe see if we could start skateboarding or start a skateboarding club, you know. Um, and so to make a long story short, I kind of, like, just said, well, how can I organize a skateboarding club? Well, I'll just take my holistic problem-solving thing and apply it to the skateboarding, um, and then my shtick kind of became, you know, you know, come to you know, come to skate hole dojo, where we don't teach you how to skateboard, we teach you how to teach people to skateboard, which actually has a big draw for students who are kind of, um, you know, uh, struggling, you know, because they're looking for something that they can be special and good at, and sure. you know, like, um, and so it, it it just sort of created its own sort of thing uh, from there, you know, and, and, and kind of let me know that w- when you're thinking about metacognition, you're really looking at a very general way of approaching problems, you know, and that's why we're the holistic, you know, since I was using sort of the holistic, like when in the dojo and why it became a dojo sort of thing is that you would, you basically design a run that you're going to do and then tell everybody what you're going to do and then show everybody how, how to do it. Okay. And if you're successful, you, you get a sticker and each sticker is related to a different level of the holistic problem solving model. So at one, it's just a sensing level. So you're just going to do some sort of rando sort of thing on your skateboard uh, to show everybody off. But then the next level is attention. So you're going to pay attention to something, you know, like what is this, you know, and so each level allows me as the, you know, the sensei, sensei. dojo leader <laughs> to be able to talk about like what attention is, I love them, it. you know, in all of yeah. these different learning aspects and get them to try to apply that to their skateboarding so that they're getting sort of this higher level uh, lesson on their neurology and learning well, they're learning how to skateboard, which uh, they're going to then interpret as what they're going to teach somebody. And and that actually becomes another mentoring layer because then what ends up happening as time goes by is I end up bringing them in to kind of work with other other kids who are younger and just starting to learn how to skateboard. Um, You know, and it, it just forms this wonderful synergy. The idea of having fun while you're doing this is terrific. I mean, I think that's that's what's missing from so many of these programs. Yours, you've got great energy anyway, but your uh, uh, adoption of this particular hobby to teach others to teach is just great. How can people find out more about you? I know you have a website. You want to share it? I have my Weebly website that I've had for like many many years, uh, which is uh, philhobick.com. You know, I am working right now at the Program for the Advancement of Learning at Curry College. You know, you can uh, reach me um, at my email, which is uh, pholbig2 at gmail.com. I'm right now very much focused on trying to find um, locations that are going to be willing to maybe even take me up on my offer of getting everybody uh, a mentor. 
you know, and mm. uh, taking this holistic problem-solving um, idea and start applying it in ways that get more mentors out there, get more people thinking metacognitively, because deep down inside, I believe metacognition is a fundamental aspect of learning. And many, many people are deprived of this fundamental aspect of learning, which later on impacts their ability to absorb and receive content in content-based learning, you know, like subject-based learning. You know, we have a crisis right now in this country of many, many students really arriving at school and they're being, we're being told they're not ready to learn. Well, what not ready to learn means is they don't know metacognitively enough about their own learning to be able to learn in the learning environments that they're mm. in. And it makes a lot more sense when you start to realize the fact that, you know, the education system has been completely rearranged thanks to COVID. Okay, we're doing a lot more online, uh, hybrid-style courses that have never been done before. Nobody's got a lot of experience with those, both the students and the teachers, even though the students are native uh, to this environment. Okay, and we as professors don't know uh, what the self-regulatory, I mean, or we're not, we're still learning. I mean, there's really good science out there that shows that, that what makes the difference between a successful and an unsuccessful online learner is their ability to self-regulate and think metacognitively. But also, if you think historically of where does this metacognitive knowledge live, where did most people learn about their own learning? Who was the person who sat them down and said, how do you do that? You know, what's your way of doing it? Well, most of the time, it was probably some parent or somebody in the house, you know, and in the intervening years, we've had, you know, large divorce rates. Many, many kids are being um, raised in single-family homes. And even in intact homes, people are working much longer hours so that their ability to even have that interaction with their kids has decreased greatly. At the same time, we now have all these electronic devices that allow that give people the illusion of interaction. Um, and, and in some sense, you are interacting, but there are many, many aspects of that interaction process that you are missing because you are only involved in the textual um, aspects of it or maybe the visual aspects. Okay, but you're, there are sensory, emotional um, aspects to self-regulation and learning that maybe in the past people you know, learned from playing outside. But kids aren't playing outside as much anymore, so they're not learning those sorts of things. And so there's just a, a dearth of metacognitive education out there. Um, and the last area I'll leave you with, because this is my background in trauma, you can take somebody and make it very, very hard for them to think metacognitively by abusing them and traumatizing them. Because if you abuse, the biggest part of metacognition is the ability to look back at yourself, look at your story, look at where you came from. How do you do it? Where are your, where are the problems that come up for you? Where are the strengths that come up for you? Uh, you know, you've got to be able to look back at yourself. And when people endure trauma, they learn this thing called repression for self-survival. And so it makes it harder for them to self-reflect on certain aspects of their learning, certain aspects of their being. Um, and so, you know, for me, this idea of getting metacognition and metacognitive learning out to as many people as possible, um, it, it, it's really 
more than just trying to improve general education. It's it's a human right, and that people are people who are dyslexic or not neurotypical. Okay, we're the people who need that the most, you know, because we're not thinking the same way as everybody else. We might not see things from your perspective. And if you can't see things from our perspective, then the two of us are not even really going to be able to communicate about what's really going on because neither of us are actually seeing the thing that needs to be looked at. You know, so it's really important that if you are not neurotypical to really think about and understand who you are in your learning and share that with other people who might have similar profiles. And that might be the, the best use scenario for a term like, say, dyslexia. Um, because it allows us to actually sort of maybe see a bigger group of people who we can say, you know, these people have similar backgrounds. Maybe they can help support each other. But we would, I think, be foolish to think that it's just like a, a one-to-one correlation because there are many things, for example, myself as a dyslexic, um, in my last little story here, to go back to my friend Katie McNeese, okay, I am your typical very conceptualized thinking person. I'm always kind of thinking up in the clouds, developing ideas. Okay. Um, Katie was really this, she was, uh, you know, from the healthcare industry, really very, very organized, you know, keeping, keeping track of things, keeping those, the two of us worked together fantastically because her strengths and her gifts were my weaknesses, you know, and my strengths and my gifts were her kind of weaknesses, and we could work together, okay, and it's sort of a synergy, um, you know, so, he, well, I probably would have been perfectly happy with maybe another dyslexic person like myself, it would have, the program probably would not have functioned as well as it did had we not had this wonderful synergy, and I think if we can start looking at people in that sort of way, that no one person has, whatever you want to call it, the average thinking process. Everybody has strengths. Everybody has weaknesses. And just because somebody has different strengths and weaknesses than you doesn't mean that you're not going to get along. It might actually mean that that's a person who, you know, like if you can find a way and you can learn how to work with that person, you can create, you know, something that is greater than just the two of you. Thanks once again to Dr. Philip Hulbig, working with cutting-edge, specialized metacognitive programming, helping students learn and achieve success. And thanks for listening to Dyslexics Wanted. Please feel free to contact us at our new web address, dyslexicswanted.org. That's dyslexicswanted.org. We welcome guest or topic suggestions. We want to share your story. Dyslexics Wanted is a production of the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia.